Hello and welcome to the Recovery Matters Podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Hi, Phil. Hello, Sandy. I think we've been pretty courageous with the podcast so far. We've been pretty authentic and transparent and taken some risks in what we've shared, but I don't think we've taken the kind of risk that we're going to take with our guest today. You think this is a risk? I think this is an incredible joy. I'm looking forward to it. Well, I think one of the things that's likely to come up is the way we operate somewhat differently as parents and we are, in my opinion, taking a slight risk, inviting our middle child, Samantha, to what? join us all the way from Nairobi, Kenya. You think of Sam as the middle child? Yeah, there's five kids. She's, well, she's shaking three. her head, so I think she thinks she's the middle child. I just think of her as Sam. Sam, welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast. How are you? I'm great. Thank you, mom and dad, for having me to the podcast. This is pretty cool. Not many people can say their uh, parents have them on a guest, on a, as a guest on a podcast. And where are you sitting right now? I'm in my classroom at West Nairobi School in Nairobi, Kenya. Just got done teaching or coaching swim practice. I don't know that this is a risk. I mean, I'm already choked up though, seeing Sam every time I see her in her classroom, about 7,250 miles away, give or take a few miles. Um, and the story of how you got to teaching and teaching in Africa is remarkable, but let's go back a little ways and go back to as far back as you can remember. And I, I want to know what it was like for you growing up. And when did you ever, and how did you discover that your parents were in recovery from alcoholism and other addiction? I don't know if I remember a specific age where I was aware of it. Um, it was more the things that I was never aware of that I didn't realize until later, right? Like we never had alcohol in the house and it wasn't really something I thought of until until I was much older. But I think mostly probably in high school is when I noticed uh, that our family was definitely different from my peers um, having parents in recovery. What does that look like when you started no noticing it different with your peers? Well, a lot of them would talk about, you know, their parents drinking, well, they had alcohol in the house for them to discover. Um, most of the time I stayed away from kids who were drinking at my age. And honestly, I don't think I realized the extent of what a lot of kids did in high school because I was so far removed from that environment. Um, a lot of it by choice and the people I wanted to be around. And a lot of it was just the influence of my parents. I remember early on, um, well, 2000 was our first recovery walk. And... Yeah. You cut the ribbon, tiny little girl, beautiful young girl. Four years old. Four years old. What did you think of the recovery walk? And I think you went to the first, how many? 
16, 17, something like that. Yeah. Um, I remember just being around a bunch of eclectic people. Um, I, you know, I didn't know all their stories to the depth of it. I think uh, I was a little protected from that. But just the characters, right? Michael Askew, Arno Grew, so many people that we just um, grew up with that were bright, full of joy, um, but were all very different from, yeah, just very different people. If you were going to give a general description of your childhood, what would that look like? Uh, it was safe and loving, and I feel like we always, like I never felt like we had to hide things from you guys. Um, it felt just like an open, open household. And I knew that um, no matter what I was going through, that like you guys were a safety net. And you know, the, the irony is, and, and I've heard you guys talk a lot about what you do and um, parents who are alcoholics currently, um, their children, and I, I've seen this from friends too, their parents are not safety nets, right? When they're in the midst of their addiction. Um, but you guys were and are. I love you that you use that term because I think I've used that term to describe my I don't know, style of parenting is that we would, that I would be, and I think you agree with this, Sandy, is that we would be safety nets that we wanted you guys I almost think of like a trampoline. <laughs> you guys are bouncing around and flying around and then we, we're the safety net to catch you if you go flying off the trampoline. Although I think this is where the difference in our parenting style is. So dad would have put up the trampoline without the safety net around it. But I was there to make sure that fencing was around the trampoline so you didn't fall off. Or the high wire, like when they walk the high wire. And the trapeze artists, they have that big safety net they can fall into. Yeah. One of the things that's unique <laughs> about you growing up, Sam, is that for your first two and a half years, your dad was a stay-at-home dad taking care of you. And you may not remember too much of that, um, but he had a chance to really be hands-on with you and your brother Joshua for a couple of years while... I was advancing my career, whether I saw it that way or not. And I used to resent dad a little bit that he got that chance with you guys until I found a letter that he had written to me about all the components of, of being available for you and Josh in that time and all the wonderful things that he saw and experienced taking you guys on walks, playing in the backyard, having disco dances in the living room. And it really kind of set me straight that that male female dynamic of who gets to do what doesn't really apply in our house to a large degree. Uh, we're still an older generation, so it's a little bit. And so I wonder, you know, as you're growing up and you look at male, female roles and you're in a completely different culture now and what that means, well, did you take anything away from that? Hmm. Well, you know, I don't have the best memory um, when I was that little, but I've always seen you guys as a team. Um, and so, right, in those roles in a marriage, right, you should be teammates. And that's not always something that I see, but it's what you guys taught me to work together. 
right? And that, that means having different roles for sure in different seasons, but ultimately working together. Well, those days, I always remember the freezum theory that I developed, that if you got <laughs> your kids cold enough, they would sleep for, take long naps. So that was either out playing out in the snow in the winter or setting up water parks in the backyard with hoses running and ice cold water and you know sliding off the picnic table into the swimming pool yeah so it, you know it's only been in recent years that i've seen the videos of those days where you know you were one year old launching yourself off a plastic slide on top of a picnic table into about six inches of water mm -hmm. mm. and laughing the whole time so we've always had um this idea of adventure, right? Um, the earliest adventures I remember are um, our time on Cape Cod with taking walks and we'd consider it like an adventure. Talk to me about your adventuresome spirit. What does that mean? And where do you think that developed and, and how has that affected your life? I never wanted to follow, you know, that straight path of go to college, get a good job, you know, stay in my close community, buy a house, those steps that are kind of laid out for you. Um, and maybe you guys messed me up in that way. I don't know. But <laughs> I think that <laughs> adventure um, comes from just wanting to be obedient to the call on my life um, and not uh, letting fear stop me from um, things that I'm called to, things that I enjoy, um, and not being afraid to just take those risks because really there are much riskier things in life than uh, some of the adventures, things that I've been on um, because I know who's walking with me. So you know who's walking with you. Talk to mm -hmm. me about that. Talk to us about that. Where, where, yeah. How does faith play a role and do you tie it into your parents being in recovery or anything you've seen or modeled or how did you discover faith? Yeah, I mean, you guys took us to church from a young age um, and you modeled your faith in different ways. Um, I've seen it in mom and how she worships. Uh, I've seen, I read that in your uh, blog post the other day, but, and mom also is not afraid to learn and to grow and to admit when she doesn't know something. Um, and I think that attitude has helped me. Um, Dad, I've seen it in just the way you walk with him, right? Very spirit led, not worrying about um, what the Christian thing is to do, but what Jesus tells you to do. And so um, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time now and um, his call in my life has led me to amazing places. Um, and my faith is more about a relationship than following a religion. And I think you guys have modeled that as well. It's a relationship with uh, Jesus for you, but you also in turn have established amazing relationships, particularly with children. And when did you discover that? And Talk to us about that and your life work. Yeah, I think I discovered it um, as early as teaching VBS at our church. What is and VBS? 
Vacation Bible School. It's a week-long summer camp program for any kids, right? Not just church kids, but any child is welcome. And then I started going to Tijuana, Mexico uh, on mission trips. Dad got to come with me a couple times. Josh went a couple times as well. Mom got to visit at some point too. But it was really there that I felt this overwhelming presence of light when I was working with kids. I loved it. And it was the first time I felt most like myself and who I was created to be and what I was created to do, especially kids from different cultures in all walks of life and status and uh, languages. Working with them was just a very beautiful picture and it led me into what I'm doing today. So that's one of the things as a mom, you know, you have kind of a, you present yourself as pretty chill and yet when you are surrounded by kids or following your calling, you light up like a Christmas tree. And that was one of the first, um, sorry, I'm getting emotional, (laughs) but that was one of the first lessons to me to to let you find your way Mm -hmm. and to take those risks. And I heard a famous speaker say this, I can't remember who it was, but it has been in my head ever since. Like I can suck the life out of my kids' dreams or I can pour into them. And I think I've poured slowly. Your dad probably, he probably gave you a fast pour, but um, there's no doubt when you see your child doing what they were created to be, that that's what you, that's your greatest hope for them. I've seen it too in uh, Tijuana. I also saw it when you were talk about your lifeguarding and and your kids at the school, at, even at the pool, that the relationships you built with them. Um, so yeah, you are a lifeguard. Anything you want to say about that? I mean, I know you had a le- recent uh, episode on the shores of Kenya <laughs> in the last year or so where your lifeguarding kicked in. Yeah, I've loved being a lifeguard. I think it's uh, a huge responsibility, but also you get to just be around kids. When I did it at our public pool in Manchester, Connecticut, I got to meet a lot of kids um, whose parents were in really rough spots. And if you were 14, I think it was younger, I think it was like 12 years old, you could come to the pool unsupervised. And so these 12 year old kids in the neighborhood would just come and spend the entire uh, day. As long as the pool was open, they would be with us. And so I got to look after them. And now in Kenya, I get to coach and watch out for kids who also, man, their families are just not in um, the best spots always. Some have incredible families and some are just seeking for that, that affirmation, that loyalty and friendship. in in somebody who is an adult, although sometimes I don't consider myself one, but yeah. I consider you to be an outstanding lifeguard and an outstanding teacher. I mean, it just, when we were in Kenya and able to see you in the classroom, just kind of warmed my heart. And I have my ideas about some of your uh, characteristics, if you will, that make you a 
very good, effective teacher, and I think it carries over into lifeguarding and coaching. Uh, what do you think those are? I think you guys have helped me um, be a better coach, and maybe that comes from your own training and training recovery coaches, but being a support, a listener, not judging their circumstance or feelings, right? When my kids come back from recess with recess drama, I'm not <laughs> jumping in to fix it, right? I let them speak, I listen, and I provide those those coaching questions. What do you think you could do next time? Um, how did this impact you? What is a better way that we can communicate what we're feeling? But I'm never telling them the script for how to solve their problems. I don't have all the answers, so I'm not going to pretend like I do. Um, so that's a huge part in just coaching them through situations. Another part is just creating what I like to call an oasis for them, um, a safe place for them to learn and grow and make mistakes. Uh, and I want to be that safe place for them as well. You have this air of authority, though, too. Miss Valentine. Miss <laughs> Valentine. Miss Valentine. Yeah, that they don't mess with you. What is that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, I think I, I respect them and I expect that respect be returned. And I think we've built a, an atmosphere of trust. And so... If they know they can trust me, then when I ask them to do something, it's not out of my own, you know, pride or arrogance that I'm the authority in the room. It's just, all right, I know Miss Valentine. She's asking me to do something. I'll follow it because I, you know, we have that mutual respect. So staying on the subject of your teaching in Kenya, you had <laughs> quite a surprise last spring as mm -hmm. the pandemic kicked in. And you had to make a choice about whether to come home or not. Talk a little bit about having to make that decision. Yeah, so in, in March, when much of the world was shutting down, we were pulled into a Friday morning meeting. Well, actually, I think it was a, yeah, it was a Friday morning. We had taught online already for a few days, expecting to come back the next week. And they told us borders would be closing that we really had two choices, stay in Kenya for an indefinite amount of time, a chance to miss the summer in the States, and then, or hop on a flight the, within the next few days. So I made the choice to, to fly back to Connecticut. And it was one of the hardest choices I made because there are all these things that I loved and were fulfilling me in Kenya, in teaching and in serving at an, a children's home and coaching. But I knew I had to leave that because I was also needed in another place too. And I knew um, that for our family, if I didn't come home that summer, I was worried about um, my relationships and our family. And I wanted to be there for my brother and sister. and. I didn't want to be gone that long. So I think God calls us into different, right? He calls us out um, from our homes into places to serve and work, but also sometimes it's, it's time to come home and your ministry is your family as well. So that's what I felt at that, that time when I made that decision that my ministry for the 
foreseeable future was our family. And we soaked that up in a massive amount of ways, but it couldn't have been easy as an adult who'd been living independently to come back into your parents' home for what ended up being about four months. And I'm, I'm like amazed that you talked about it that way and very grateful because um, I think your impact and your call on uh, your younger brother, Matthew, has made all the difference where he was in a really rough space and he's now turned that around. And it wasn't easy to watch or see or to even coach, you know, the people closest to you. Uh, but Sandy and I did our best. And I think we were fortunate to see him turn that around and make some decisions. And a turning point for me came when he said something about, you know, he was headed down a path and my dad, you couldn't have changed that for me. I had to do it myself. And I said, I know I was well aware of that, but it didn't make it any easier. And he was so grateful that we didn't push him or make these huge demands or punish him. We made him aware that we knew what was going on. And he knows the same thing. He knows that his parents love him. And I think he knows too, especially with you, how much you love him and care for him. And Mary's the same way. So thank you for coming home. Thank you for letting me live rent-free for a few months. <laughs> you can always live rent-free. Yeah, when you have a missionary daughter that you're signing up for that for life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, one of the things that happened while we were at home too were the dinner table conversations. So we had been a family that had a lot of commitments every night and we didn't have the family dinner every evening because people needed to be driven. There were games, there were practices, different end times. It was kind of crazy. And we found ourselves, you know, shut in to our home and having those family meals. And I appreciate that the coaching that you gave me as different topics came up. And I learned a lot from you. Um, and now that it's dad and Mary and I. Mary's getting more and more like your father every day. Uh, pretty much want to go eat in the living room again. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have one example of where you feel Sam coached you? I was being selfish during the pandemic about... Well, this is obviously a good one. Uh, no, I was... <laughs> a good example. So, you know, I love little people too. And I've loved having grandchildren, Colleen's two children. And I wasn't able to see them because we couldn't answer the questions that Colleen would ask about safety around COVID um, because Matthew was out in the world often. And I remember you saying to me, mom, the kids are doing well. We're doing well, but Matthew isn't. He needs to see his friends for his own mental health. And that stung because I was selfish, but it made all the sense in the world. And it was a real turning point, I think, for him to have the remaining months at home and 
and start making different choices. So thank you for that. You're welcome. I think sometimes we have to love said, each Go ahead. For the record, I never said that uh, she was selfish. Those are her own words. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but I, I think what I want for our family is that we love each other enough to tell each other the truth. Mm-hmm. and trust that the person loves us enough that the only reason they're sharing that is because of that love. Mm-hmm. Love. Love. How about that? So speaking of love, how about a little tough love? Oh, gosh. <laughs> See what I did there. And Sammy, had the you had the opportunity back in 2015 mm-hmm. to go on a little adventure with me for 23 days on the Appalachian Trail during my through hike. Now we've done a couple of podcasts on my through hike and we talked mm-hmm. a lot about you joining um, me and I would love for you to ramble on a little bit about your entire experience like what made you decide to join me? Um, what did you discover about yourself? Has that had any impact on you in the years that followed those kinds of things? Well, I want to back it up just a little bit. Sure. I think some of our listeners who heard those podcasts will know my feelings the four years that he planned it. But when dad began talking about making this big trip, what were your thoughts then? You know, I think dad sometimes has some crazy ideas. Um, (laughs) Sometimes. (laughs) But he was committed to it. I don't remember a lot, but I remember him reading a ton of books, starting to get his gear together. I do remember thinking that the one thing he wasn't really doing that he should probably have started was training hardcore (laughs) and adjusting his diet, like that. So... Physically, I was a little nervous about him because he he was living his normal life. I mean, he went on some longer walks to church, but that that was the only thing that was concerning. As far as my journey, I, honestly, I don't remember why I chose to do it. I just remember thinking, Dad's out there having this great adventure. I want to join him. And... I definitely felt very unprepared. I remember the Amazon boxes would come in to my dorm room of seven girls and I would open them up. When I got my tent, I set it up in the living room and my whole house, my dorm climbed in to see how big it was. It was a nice tent. The only issue was it didn't zip. It just clipped, which would freak me out later on. But So I got all my gear. Again, I didn't train either, which I was like, this is the thing I told, or I was thinking dad didn't do, and now I'm not even training. I was playing intramurals, but that was it. And my friend Faith dropped me off on her way back home for the summer um, in the middle of Damascus, Virginia. The only thing I had with me was my backpack that I was going to hike with. I met a really nice lady, the owner of the inn, and waited in the room for a couple hours. And I heard dad walk through, say, Sam, 
and I came down and he was skinny and alive and um, <laughs> he had a big smile and lots of tears. Um, mm -hmm. But those first couple days were hard. I was out of shape. My legs hurt. I got a rash, heat rash all over my legs. My boots were giving me blisters. But at no point did it cross my mind that I was going to stop. I had no idea how long I would hike, but I knew I was in it for a few more weeks. Uh, the trail family we had was amazing, supportive. The views and the places and things we got to experience were amazing. I think that trip, I mean, it taught me a lot, but I think more than anything, it gave me the confidence to continue my journey and to realize that I had these reserves of strength that I didn't know that I had physically and mentally to, to literally conquer mountains and later to help me conquer metaphorical mountains. Um, but we talked about things like you always have options, consider them to continue. Uh, the only way is to keep walking and to continue on. But also if you need to sit, find a nice log and rest, that's okay too. Uh, it was just really special time. It was a really special time to experience that to now, what's it been five years, six years? later to still be able to reflect on those memories and that journey and relate to what uh, dad had gone through and other hikers have gone through in just a small way. So I'm very, very grateful for it. I think it has impacted a lot of my choices today. There was a time on the trail where um, I think we, you were going up uh, Mount Rogers and you started, I was always, you were worried that you were going to slow me down. Mm -hmm. And I caught up with you and I looked, one look in your eyes was the same look that you had when you're with children. And I was almost startled by that, like, wow. And you're like, dad, I said, go. And then you just took off up this mountain and just found your hiking legs, if you will. And uh, I knew you loved being outdoors. You loved the sleeping outdoors, the hiking, being out there the whole time. I also remember a time where we were on that uh, nature's foam. You remember that top of that mountain on the rocks and, mm -hmm. and you kind of climbed off to yourself and the clouds were literally at our fingertips. And I felt you were just communing with God and it was just so peaceful. Um, but that, that adventuresome spirit has not left you. You still, um, much to your mother's chagrin, end up dangling off of ledges, ledges in all kinds of areas like South Africa or, uh, camping with hippos in Africa, or even when you were still in Virginia at school at Liberty University, you would uh, take people hiking to different places. And so talk to us a little bit about that part of you. Yeah, I think being out in nature in these gorgeous places, sometimes I like doing it alone, but most of the time it connects me with whoever I'm with. 
And so those shared experiences in beautiful places are where I feel comfortable connecting with others. And so I've gotten to go to some amazing places. Next weekend, I'm going back to one of my favorite places in Kenya called Hell's Gate National Park. And we set up our tents right up on a cliff overlooking like a scene out of Lion King. There are wild buffalo and zebras and giraffes and it's it's absolutely beautiful we've had zebras come up right by our tents and giraffes like i went from wild horses outside my tent which was cool enough and now i wake up to a giraffe it just doesn't feel real sometimes but right just appreciating god's beauty and his creation and also that connection with the people you share it with are some of my favorite things and they fill me to continue uh, with the work that I'm doing. It refreshes my soul. So as you know, this is probably the biggest difference in wiring between dad and I. He doesn't have a fear of the natural world similar to yours and I do. And we had the chance to visit you in Kenya about 15 months ago with Matthew and Mary. And I remember praying my butt off for three months before I went that I wouldn't be the weakest link, that I wouldn't ruin the experience. And you took us to the Maasai Mara on a safari, staying in a, a very luxurious tent at the Sekinani camp um, where Maasai warriors would stand outside our tent at night with a spear to make sure that nothing happened to the guests. Um, and I loved it more than I ever could have imagined. And I only went because I thought everybody else would love it. So we, we talk about codependency on this podcast, but that was like the picture of codependency. A, I want to see my daughter. So if she's in Kenya, I'll go to Kenya. But I'm going to go on a safari because everybody else will love it. And it was the most magical experience of my life other than giving birth. But, um, so another thing to thank you for, because you pulled me way out of my comfort zone there. And I now have changed the way I think about a lot of things. But um, Yeah, that tent was interesting, though, when you hear something loud thump on the floor in the middle of the night and it's not human so <laughs> that was right outside the, but i didn't know what that was i think it was a monkey but who knows um what was that experience like for you having your family come visit uh you know your where you work and your ministry talk a little bit about uh the mukuru church and then talk about the Masai mara and what that was like for you it was Something that I had looked forward to since I arrived in Kenya was having my people in the place that I had grown to love. So the fact that you guys even came meant a lot. And I spent months thinking about what the week or so that you were here was going to look like and thinking through every detail, not wanting to push you guys too hard, but also wanting to show you the full picture of what I do here. And so I think you guys got to see that. You got to see each part of the work that I, that I do here. Um, you came to our church that um, 
my friend my friends Dave and Nicole Pound and I started in Mukuru Kwajenga, which is a local slum right outside of Kibera. And it's not an easy journey getting there. And you were lucky enough to come during rainy season. Involved knee-high boots and walking through various liquids and garbage to just even get to the church. And I was so impressed by by you both, but even just by Matthew and Mary and their, I mean, if you want to experience culture shock, it's the perfect place to go. But Mary and Matthew just walked on through and I asked Mary later, were you nervous? Because not only are you walking through extreme conditions, but you know, you have people shouting Mzungu and staring at you and wondering what on earth you're doing there. But Mary said, well, I looked at you and you were calm, so I was calm. Uh, and she knew that if I started freaking out, then it probably was a time to also freak out. <laughs> I think I only did maybe once or twice, but I think, you know, I think that was cool. Uh, that church has just been an incredible part of my time here and watching the community grow and accept us and uh, focus on discipleship and just meeting some needs and then you also got to come to the orphanage in Kenya, we call it children's homes that I've gotten to serve at. And most of these kids have either been just left on the side of the street. They, um, sometimes they have families, but they, they're not willing to take them in for different circumstances. Almost all of them are positive HIV children. And so that is, they're very immunocompromised, but it was great to see you guys just embrace them. And they ran right up to you. They loved meeting you guys, which was really sweet. Um, that was pretty magical to me to see this tiny little two or three-year-old run up to dad, six foot four, you know, mustache, goatee, and just hands up, like just just a deep desire to connect and be loved. And we brought Play-Doh, which they hadn't had before. And just a simple thing like Play-Doh allowed us to sit with them and connect with them. And my heart is definitely called to go back there when um, the pandemic subsides and that opportunity arises. Um, and not for them, but just for me to be around that just openness and innocence yeah yeah we haven't been able to visit them since the world shut down because again very immunocompromised they're keeping a very strict lockdown so I, yeah it's been a while the rest of your trip in kenya we got to visit some of my favorite places meet some of my favorite people matthew got to run in the rhino stampede 5k the morning after our flight into kenya which that i still can't believe he did that i was looking at my yearbook yesterday and he's in the photo of everybody sprinting through so even that is really cool that my brother is in my my yearbook from last year um i remember everyone well actually i'd love to hear what you guys uh remember from coming onto campus the first time? Oh, I think just how warm and inviting everybody was. And what I really loved was that it was just as important 
important to you to introduce us to the security guards and the cafeteria staff as your fellow teachers and that type of community was really powerful. And then just the gorgeous setting. I mean, your classroom is kind of an indoor outdoor classroom in a lot of ways. Um, how about you, Phil? I was surprised at the location that it was on such a steep hill and it was backed by jungle and a highway, which is kind of like Africa and Kenya. They're all mixed up. Um, but I remember the roofs, like the thatch roofs and how amazing, what amazing structures they are and, and how beautiful it was and the different trees and the foliage. And then to see you in the classroom with the kids and being called Miss Valentine and just you were calm, confident, uh, competent, that you are just an excellent teacher. And um, it's, it just warms my heart. And you know, earlier on, uh, well, Sam, you talked about, you know, the steps you were supposed to take and you ended up going to Liberty University and following uh, your older brother, Joshua there. And, but you hadn't planned to do that until what happened with all that because that opened the door for you to become a teacher. After going to Mexico for a few summers, I was ready to just get out there. I knew I didn't, right? I knew I didn't want to follow the plan. I wanted to just be on the mission field. I read this book, Kisses from Katie, written by Katie Davis, who after high school moved to Uganda and started this incredible ministry and journey. And I said, well, if she could do that with no experience, I can do that too. But it was my last trip to Mexico that God very clearly showed me that I wasn't ready, that I needed the education and experience that college would provide for me in order to train me to be out onto the field. So I think there's huge value in going through training for your, your calling and your ministry. Liberty ended up being way more than just an education. I got to go on some incredible experiences to Ethiopia to visit a school and see what it really would be like to teach overseas, to go on disaster relief trips with just a few days notice to Mississippi, to Mexico City. So I met so many incredible people. I think the community that surrounded me discipled and trained me and taught me things that, man, I would have been very ineffective had I gone out before I had had those experiences. And I don't think that I would have lasted as long out here um, if I had not gone through those, that training and those experiences. So one of the magical pieces of your story is you got to meet Katie last mm -hmm. year in Uganda, yeah. right? Yeah, I never would have imagined that possible, but we had connections to friends in Uganda and the woman who opened her home with us that we stayed and was our host throughout the week was a bridesmaid or Katie was a bridesmaid in this woman Ruthie's wedding. And so we ended up showing up at Katie's house, not even to visit, just to pick up Ruthie's Christmas tree that Katie was storing. 
and ended up meeting her. So that was really special and kind of a full circle moment for me. One of the things you've talked to us about is as a, as a missionary in an international school, you have some choices about how deeply you want to get involved in the culture. You know, you could, uh, you could play it safe or you could get a little uncomfortable. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think anywhere you move to cross-culturally, you can always find your, your international bubble, the people who are like you, who have similar experiences. But when I first came here, I knew I wanted to integrate myself into the culture and into the community. And so instead of just going to work and home every day, I really wanted to be involved in projects like Makuru Christian Church and the Children's Home and experience uh, things about Kenya and also build relationships with the locals and learn the language, which I'm not fluent in by any means, but just picking up on some of those customs and traditions, I think is so important wherever you are to be to be in the community, to not keep yourself separate and safe, but um, to integrate yourself. And one of the ministries you got connected with that kind of brings full circle, I think I'm wearing a piece of jewelry from it, is Tazima? Tazamania. Tazamania. Tell us a little bit about that because it kind of connects us back to the beginning of our conversation about having parents in recovery. Yeah, Tasmania is an incredible organization run by Cami and Brad and Matt Black. They've been in Kenya, I want to say more than 10 years. They raised their kids here and they live in another local slum called Gondo and they do a lot of community development and outreach. One of their ministries, one of their main ministries now actually is an alcohol assistance program. They... Um, have people who meet I think almost every night in this program and now they've been trained to be a part of some of the the projects that Tasmania does and so I've heard a lot about that they saw it as a huge need in the community was you know alcoholics who just had no pathway out we see that a lot in Mukuru too um, right like when your outlook on life is that it has nothing to offer you because of your circumstance, because of your lack of opportunity. They have turned a lot of times to to alcoholism as a way to just numb their world. It was really special a couple months back, one of these men who we passed every Sunday on our way to church still continuing the previous night um, he finally, we would invite him to church. Hey, when you're sober next time, come to church. He finally came, which was really special and brought a couple of his buddies the following weeks. But that has, that's been really cool to watch him grow. He actually just got baptized just a couple weeks ago. God's at work in your life. And obviously, and when I think about our trip, I do want to circle back to your thoughts on the Maasai Mara. Mm -hmm. And Nairobi is actually about a, a it's like a 6,000 6, feet above sea level. So it's a mile above sea level. Mm -hmm. And the Maasai is also up there. So it's a very, uh, uh, I mean, the Mara is absolutely 
it's a very temperate area. It's a lot cooler. It's not hot tropical like you think. It does get hot. But that has to be the most magical landscape I've ever been on. And what yeah. was your reflection about being out there on the Maasai, Mara? I've said that Nairobi is definitely a place of extremes, or not Nairobi, Kenya is a place of extremes. We have extreme poverty and corruption, but also very extreme beauty. So I think the Maasai Mara is one of those places that you can experience that extreme beauty, that just being out on the safari truck, standing up through the sky roof, with the fresh air and the sunlight, never knowing really what animal you'll see around the next bend down the dirt road. You don't know what's what's coming. And I think that's part of the thrill and the excitement of being out there is being grateful for every animal encounter you do have um, and just waiting and hope for the next one. I think it's really, really special be out there and it was even better to be out there experiencing it to that extent um with my family just to think of seeing like a pride of lions just yeah. a few feet away or a, uh, a cheetah mom with her her pups you know walking on seven of them walking alongside of her under our truck mm -hmm. i mean i don't want to get into the crocodiles and hippos and all that <laughs> but oh my but I was impressed with the water buffalo and Matthew was so impressed with the lion that he had to have one tattooed on his leg, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, so it has a lasting impact as we end, wrap up our time. Is there anything that you wanna add about uh, how you think recovery influenced your life and where you are today? To this day, I have not had a sip of alcohol or tried any drug, you know, other than ibuprofen, you know, the typical. <laughs> but I think that is a huge, the huge reason is because of you guys and knowing what, what could potentially happen had I, if I did start that. And I think being a person, which really it's funny to say, like, I'm not a person in recovery but I am sober and for the last 24 years of my life, I've never had a sip of alcohol. And so I think it's unique to a lot of people. I don't know anyone other than my own siblings who could say the same at this age, right? It was different in high school because it was still illegal. But as an adult, every dinner party I go to, every time I go out to eat at a restaurant with friends, alcohol is usually involved. And so for me to have to say no, to let them know, sorry, I don't drink and to answer the questions about why, I think surprised me to experience that at this age. Um, sometimes it can be, I don't know if frustrating is the right word, more just uh, an, a part of my life that I have to share quite often. And I think sometimes at restaurants, which I know mom does something similar to or used to when, when she was out with her work friends, if everybody's ordering fancy alcoholic drinks, I feel the need to order some sort of strawberry lemonade or fancy drink as well, non-alcoholic, 
to fit in with with the group. So I think that has always been an interesting part of my story. And even just living in a house now as an adult with, where there's alcohol in the fridge, I think I never, I never realized that that would be hard for me, but sometimes it is. How do you say no? That, or how do you explain that you don't drink? I usually say no thank you. If they ask why, then I say, well, both my parents are in recovery. They used to be alcoholics. And so for me, it's just not a good idea for me. Good one. That's a yeah. good answer. Yeah. And honestly, I don't really want you under the influence when there are wild animals outside your tent. I think you need to be have all your senses with you, Sam. Yeah. I mean, for sure, making this choice for myself, the only reason is not who my parents are. I think that's how it started, but now it's my own personal choice for the way I want to live. Um, but still a, a big part of that is just seeing what can happen, knowing myself, knowing my genetics, and just not wanting to go down that path. I did want to pressure you into that decision. And I fought against that. Did you ever feel any pressure from us? The only thing I think you guys reminded me of was your brain is fully developed by 21. And so if you're going to drink, wait till you're 21. 25, actually, Sam. Yeah, well, that's, and that's it, 25. Well, it's actually, yeah. a year. It was pro well, I think they thought it was 21 when we were talking to her yeah. about that, but it's kind of evolved to 25 or 26. Uh, Sam, I just want to wrap this up and say thank you for sharing your heart and your soul with us. Um, I can continue to be incredibly inspired by your courage. I think of the first time we sent you off to Nairobi, where you didn't know anyone or even really know who was going to pick you up at the airport or know what you were flying into. And when I asked you about that another time, you said, well, I wasn't really all that nervous. I was on an adventure with God. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's incredibly inspiring because I think that's how I try to live every day to the best of my ability is that I have today is another adventure with God. And, uh, I love you so much, and you are such an inspiration. Continue. Thank you. I agree, Sam. Um, you know, you've always kind of stretched me, and I'm grateful for your support, your kindness, um, and kind of getting me to live a little bit outside my box. I may not be jumping out too wide, but um, I'm taking my own steps, but a lot of that is seeing you do it and, and knowing how you're doing it, you know, because I, I share that same faith. So love you, sweetheart. Love you guys. Yeah. Say hi to everyone for us. And I'll thank you again for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to recovery matters. We hope that you've connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us. Like and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ccar, the number four, recovery. And use the hashtag recoveryfirst to show support for our mission. 
Fire feeds fire. So if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.